do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? In fact, I'm going to answer this question and a number of other related questions. Let me list the questions I attempt to answer in this session. So the first one, let me say it again, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? The question is somewhat awkwardly worded, but we'll discuss that later. My second follow-up question would be, do all Christians worship the same God? The third follow-up question would be, do Christians and fill in the blanks, Buddhist, Hindus, Jewish people worship the same God? Then the fourth question I'm going to answer is, what is Chrislam? Maybe a new term to some of you. Uh, the fifth question I plan to answer is, who is Allah, the Almighty, a Muslim God, a pagan moon God, or there are other suggestions that have been made. Number six, how are we to use the word Allah? So the next question is, is worship of the quote-unquote right God the way of salvation? So if we are sure we worship the right God, are we saved thereby? And the eighth area I will address is how to share the gospel with Muslim friends. So let's go to the first cluster of questions, one, two, and three. Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Do all Christians worship the same God? And do Christians and whatever group we want to pit there worship the same God? So we have to first of all ask, what, what is our definition of God? Who is the God we worship? We could start with that, because that's one way to answer this question. So to find the answer to that, we go to the most famous creed in the history of Christianity called the Nicene Creed from the fourth century. And pretty well all Christian churches with a couple of small exceptions adhere to this. So let me read the Nicene Creed about how we view God. All right, here it comes. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, the only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, things in heaven and things on earth. Who, became, who because of us humans and on our account of our salvation came down and came in the flesh and became man, suffered and rose on the third day and ascended into the heavens and will come to judge the living and the dead and we believe in the Holy Spirit." So that has been the foundational belief of the Christian church since its beginning, we would say. But it was articulated in this fashion. And you will notice if you are a part of the church where Pastor Nathan and I are privileged to be in leadership together with others, that some of the phrases here defining God, or we often preach without quoting the Nicene Creed. So if we pose the question, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God based on the Nicene Creed, which I adhere to? The obvious answer is no. There is no Muslim who would subscribe to what I just read. None would agree with that. Uh, but then, do other Christians, do, 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 do all Christians worship the same God? Well, almost all Christians would adhere to the Nicene Creed. There is one group, however, that don't. It's, they're called the Oneness Pentecostals. So they speak in tongues. <laughs> they do many things, but they do not believe in this Nicene Creed. So that would be one group. So we have to also, uh, because the question, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? It singles out the Muslims. So it's a double-edged sword. So whatever question we might apply to our Muslim friends, we would apply to everybody. Is that right? And uh, then uh, whatever other group. Now, 
when you listen to people, and I pay a lot of attention to this subject because, as you know, our ministry has been among Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims. I spend a lot of my time with these people of different religions, and my goal is to present the gospel of Jesus Christ with signs, wonders, and miracles, but also to articulate the gospel in the way that is true to Jesus Christ and the Bible. And so when people make statements about Muslims and Christians worshiping the same God. Usually, I just read one article recently, in fact, where the uh, author was saying, no, we don't have the same God. And they argue on the basis of the Trinity. That's the main argument, that Muslims do not believe in God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. And they make that whole argument hang on that. However, if you make that the argument then we must conclude that Jews and Christians don't have the same God also. And very often, they're the same people who will make this argument in reference to Muslims, they will quickly say, well, Jews and Christians have the same God. But then you cannot use the argument of the Trinity because there is no Jewish rabbi or adherence to the Jewish religion that would prescribe to the idea that God is Father and Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Then the other argument that is made on this topic commonly, Trinity, the other one is that the God of the Quran, which is the holy book of the Muslims, is not a God of love such as the God of the Bible. And the argument is made that, you know, the God of the Bible loves everyone. God so loved the world. He loves sinners that he gave his only begotten son. And so they argue, say, the God of the Quran says that God only loves the righteous. God only loves those who are perfect and obedient to him. And so that argument, so then we would say, well, they don't have the same God as us, which I've already concluded based on the Nicene Creed. Uh, I'm merely just introducing the complexity of the question because most people don't want to hear the question in its complexity. They just want a simple, fast answer. So if we argue on the basis that the Quran, the God of the Quran, the book of the Muslims, is not loving towards sinner, but he loves only selectively, then also that has a double-edged sword because the part of the Protestant Christian faith that we know as Calvinist have the same belief also. And Calvinism, I submit to you, is the most dominant theology in modern-day American, Canadian, evangelicalism, and Protestantism. And the teaching of Calvinism, which is Presbyterian, Reformed churches, although most of them want to hide it, but it's there. They don't announce it on Sunday morning because Sunday mornings aren't for inconvenient truths. It's to make everybody feel happy. But the truth is that they believe in limited atonement, and God only loves those he had pre-selected for salvation, not the, not the rest who were not pre-selected. So if we are to say that, that Muslims are so different on the issue of love, of a God who loves uh, all humanity, then we must also pose the same question to some of our Christian friends. So I'm saying the question is more complex than we at first want to admit. But I think I have made it clear based on the Nicene Creed no Muslim would subscribe to that. Now, there's another way of looking at it that I submit could be more gracious, where the question is not as awkwardly worded. The question is saying, instead of saying, do Christians and Muslims have the worship the same God, we could say, do, do Christians and Muslims have the same understanding of God? There's another argument that can be made from Scripture, and I will read the Scriptures later on, that could be like this, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all kinds of people, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, all kinds of tribal religions, some of them worship spirit beings and their various deities, but they have a concept of a supreme God, sometimes referred to as the sky God, as the most high God, and we could make a more gracious statement in saying that all people who call on God are calling on the God of the universe, though they're doing it ignorantly. They are ignorant in how they do it. 
so that our task then would not be as preachers of the gospel to go around telling people you have the wrong God, but to do much like the Apostle Paul said, you are trying to worship God, but you don't know God. You have a, your mind is darkened, uh, so you don't know God as God has chosen to reveal who he is through the one he sent, Jesus Christ. So in that sense, we could take the approach of saying all people of goodwill, which the scripture called God-fearing people, including people in pagan cities that Paul visited like Athens, where they worship gods like Poseidon and Aphrodite and other goddesses and gods. He did not condemn them over this. He merely said, you, you're doing your best. You're trying to worship God according to the light you have, but I've come to reveal God to you. I would submit to us today that maybe uh, that's something for us to consider. But I trust I've given you an answer based on the Nicene Creed. I think the answer is clear. But we must then also say that that includes our Jewish friends because they would not subscribe to the Nicene Creed either. Let's move along. Uh, I said my fourth question is, what is chrislam? Well, chrislam is a rather new term that has come to describe people who want to merge Christianity and Islam into one religion or a third stream, if you wish. And uh, the word is rather emotional. People are rather heated up about it. And, and, and so some people are trying to merge the two because both Islam and Christianity speak of many of the same prophets, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, you know, so there's that attempt. So then the flip side of that becomes people then have heard warnings against Chrislam. And let me make you very clear about this. We are not. I am not a proponent of Chrislam. I am a proponent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not promoting Chrislam. But some people, the moment they hear us say the slightest word of love and compassion towards Muslims... They like to brand us with that. So, for example, in my book, My Muslim Friends, and I talk about our friendship approach, some people become so nervous. I mean, at the very least, Jesus was a friend of sinners. If you think any people of any other religion are sinners, you should be a friend of theirs. It shouldn't be such a shocking thing. But, you know, in this day of these very false religious fervors, People get all caught up in that. And so, so we have a friendship approach, and there are people. We have a friend, Pastor Nathan, and I have a mutual friend. I won't give his name, but he's from Indonesia. He, he's a pastor. He's a very respected denominational leader. He has a, a, a large church, very respected in his entire province as a Christian leader. And his church would be typical Christian. It would be anything about it would be Christian, but he also operates an other ministry on the side and uh, I he's a dear friend of ours and so I think I can speak almost as good about it as he would himself so he sends out workers gospel workers who are entrepreneurs they start a little business maybe making french fries or cooking something or sewing something and they're actually gospel carriers they go into a Muslim culture and they're not trying to make the Muslims into Baptists or Presbyterians or Pentecostals. So they even dress, they have the hat and they have the special robe and they, 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 they sit on the floor and they have men on one side and women on the other, not that they just, just to fit in there. And uh, he said, most Christians can't believe this, he said. They think we're compromising, but he said, Pastor Peter, he said to me, you are so busy, you probably can't come. Uh, but maybe Nathan, your associate, is not as busy as you are. I don't know why he thought that he could come. He said, because sometimes on the island of Java, we meet with all these missionaries. They bring all these Muslim believers in Christ. And he said, they're baptized in water. And they sing, I have decided. He said, four or five thousand singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And even though they look in the dress... So he says, but you're too busy. You know, they think I'm such a mighty man of God. I have time for nothing. I said, I said, no, I think I want to come instead of Pastor Nathan. I said, I think, no, I think both of us are going to go and see that. And so some would suggest that that is Chrislam. That's not Chrislam to me. That is contextualizing the gospel. 
you know, we, 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 we have such a European context of Baptist and, and Lutheran and all this. This is irrelevant. What's relevant to the world at large is the gospel. And so just wanted to clarify that. Then, now we're coming to the controversial part. So far, it was easy. The fifth question I asked, who is Allah, the, the almighty a Muslim God or pagan moon God or something else. So let me give you some facts. These are some facts I think are indisputable. You may like the facts or you may not like them, but I'm going to give you some facts. Are we all ready? Fact number one. Millions of Christians believe Allah refers to an idol and is satanic. That's a fact, especially American, European, and Australian Christians. Christian proponents of this idea are people like John Hagee and Pat Robertson. I use only those two because they are on YouTube saying that very thing. Millions, because of their influence, believe what they're saying. We have uh, institutions here in Toronto that are endorsed by one of those two people. So that's a fact. I recognize that. Some of you would be in that group of millions. Thank you for coming today. It's a fact. Here's another fact. It's also indisputable. Codex Arabicus Vaticanus was the first translation of the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, into the Arabic language. I think we have a picture of it here. It's the only Bible translation that was done in three columns. This particular version of that was found, is dated to 867 after Christ. Now, it is believed by many it may have been written 100 years earlier. So we're talking about the, in the 700s after Christ. So there were theologians who translated from Hebrew into Arabic, and they translated from Greek, the New Testament, into Arabic. So we would have to assume that those who translated Codex Arabicus Vaticanus, forget about the Vaticanus part, it only says Vaticanus because the, the oldest known version is held in the Vatican. It wasn't written or translated in the Vatican, it's just if you were allowed into the archives, you could find it somewhere there, all right? But it's Codex Arabicus. This particular one was found in an old monastery in the Sinai Desert. So it was written very soon after Islam had come on the, on the scene. And in this translation of scripture, what word did the translators use for Yahweh, Elohim, and the Greek word theos for God? They used Allah. Allah is the word for God in the first Arabic translation. We can either assume that those translators knew nothing, or we can assume that they knew something of the language of the Arab people. That's a fact. Here's another fact. Many Bible translations today use the word Allah when it refers to God. For example, in all countries, you can go across the Middle East, Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, Jordan, Yemen, whatever. Whatever Bible translations you have, the word for God is Allah. There are also other, like the Hausa people of northern Nigeria. In their Bible, the word for God is Allah. In Indonesia, the word for God is Allah. You can like that or not like it. Here's another fact. Millions of Christians, notice this, millions of Christians worship Allah every day. I didn't say millions of Muslims, I said millions of Christians. They sing songs, their praise and worship songs are directed to Allah. They pray to Allah. Why is that? That's a fact. We like it or not like it. Maybe all those millions are deceived, maybe not. Well, the reason they do that, because in their Bible, the only word they have ever heard for God is Allah. 
So when they turned and opened to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, Allah created the heaven and earth. That's what they read. So that's all they've ever heard. They went to Sunday school. They had a mama and papa who believed in God, took the children to Sunday school. That's what they learned. Millions every day. And I've been to many of those countries. When I first encountered this, I was shocked. I was in Egypt teaching 900 pastors. This is almost 20 years ago now. And I wasn't as in tune with these questions, but I started preaching. And from time to time, I mentioned God in my sermon. Do you think a preacher should do that? And my interpreter was actually a Presbyterian pastor. He, he kept saying Allah every time. I said, let me see your Bible. And there it was. That's a fact. It's a fact. Here's another fact. Almost all Christians in an Arabic culture agree that Allah is the word for the Almighty. So those who live in that culture agree with that. And so, therefore, I will submit, in that culture where that is the word for God, it is appropriate to use that word. Just like, let me put some other words for God on the screen. Here is one word that you may have heard of. Have you heard of God? I think it's appropriate in Canada, United States, when we talk about God, that we call God, God. How many think that's a good idea? Now, then, but I suppose if you go to South America, I don't think you should call God, God. They should call God, Dios. Would that be appropriate? Dios le bendiga, hermana. But if you go to East Africa, in parts of Congo, it would be appropriate to call God Mungu. It would be appropriate there. But if you go to Finland, where my beloved Taina is from, it would be appropriate for you to call God Yumala. Yumala rakastan sinua means God loves you. Whew. Guess how I know all those words. If you go to Greece, it would be appropriate to call God Theos. I put the word Mansrin in there because wherever I go in the world, you know, I've been to so many countries, I ask people of the different tribes, who is your, what's your name for God? And somewhere in Western Papua province, I was with a tribe, forget even their name, and I still remember they said, the most high is Mansrin. Okay, well, I've come to tell you about Mansrin. Then you have Shen or Shanti, that is the proper name for God in China. So if you're in China, you shouldn't call God God or Dios. You should call God Shanti or Shen. And there's a root for that word, meaning a big boss or overlord or, you know. Then Hananim. I just gave you a few examples. That's Korea. So if you're in Korea, it would be appropriate because we could find different meanings that the Buddhists also use Hananim and, and Shintoists maybe use. We could find all kinds of reasons not to use Hananim, but following in the Pauline example, if you are in Korea, you should call God Hananim. That would be appropriate. Moving along, having said all that, the question is not, and I think all reasonable people except for a few exceptions agree, is not if Allah should be used, but when and where. In some languages, the word Allah means the Islamic God, which I, why I don't use it. For example, we don't stand up here and say, let's worship Allah this morning. That would be highly inappropriate at the Toronto Celebration Church. That would not be appropriate. It wouldn't be appropriate if I went to Quebec or if I went, it, it, it would be inappropriate because in most people's mind, in our culture, Allah is not just a generic noun for God, it is a proper noun for the Islamic God. So that's why we don't do that. However, in other languages, Allah is the generic word for God. Like in Indonesian, like in the Hausa language, like in Arabic, you can speak of God, false gods, different gods, and it's the word Allah, or a derivative of that word. So if we put this, there's, there's a generic noun or a common noun where whatever you refer to God or gods, you use a certain word. And then there is that where it's a proper noun, refers to only one religion. So we have to be sensitive, as Paul was, to who we are speaking with. 
Here's another fact that is linguistically not disputed by anyone that I can, that I've ever heard of, even those who would disagree with what I'm saying, that the Hebrew language, Arabic and Aramaic, remember Jesus preached in Aramaic, these are Semitic languages, three languages. Now, look at the word for God. In Hebrew, it's Elo or Eloha or Elohim or a derivative of that. In Arabic, it's Allah. In Aramaic, the word for God is Elah, Elaha or Allaha. So can you see that all those words are linguistically, not theologically, but they are linguistically related? How many can see that? I mean, Hananim, the Korean word wouldn't fit in. Shanti, the Chinese, wouldn't, wouldn't fit in. But these words are obviously related, just like in the Germanic language group, we have God, and then we have Ger the German Gott, and we have Gud, you know, that's Swedish, and we have the Dutch, which is something similar. So you can tell those languages are related. Can you tell that? It doesn't, so, so I'm merely pointing that out. If you break down linguistically, that you could also say God in Arabic, Ilah, and Al-Ilah, meaning the God becomes Allah. And so th these are just things that uh, are linguistically true. Now, let me hasten to clarify that if you speak to a Jewish person in Israel and you say Allah, they will understand that to be the Islamic God. So just because they are related, if you're speaking to Jewish people, you shouldn't use the word Allah because they think I'm an Islamic God. Their, their word for God is Elo or Elohim. And so, uh, and the same thing among, among uh, Arabs, Muslims, if you say Elohim or Elo, they know that you, you're talking about the Hebrew God. So they have all those understandings. So, and when we translate the Bible, we gotta be very careful. For example, the word father should never be translated other than father. It shouldn't be translated Allah or any, no, no, let's be precise in the language. Uh, now, I'm gonna address another issue here. Some have made the claim that Allah is the name for a pre-Islamic uh, in Arabia, moon god. And those two I refer to, Pat Robertson and John Hagee, specifically. Uh, Pat Robertson, who I really appreciate, he made that statement many years ago, didn't give any backing for it. John Hagee has done so more recently, also without any proof. The only proof, evidence, which is rather ridiculous evidence, I'll give you where it came, I'll give you the evidence in a moment, is that Muslims use a crescent moon on some of their flags, and they follow the lunar calendar. I would submit, well, who created the lunar calendar in the first place? So it's a rather frivolous, considered non-serious uh, scholarship. So, where did this come from? Because when a preacher says this, not only those two well-known ones, they always hide behind an expert. Experts say. So I'm going to tell you who the experts are who said this. It wasn't the Codex Arabicus Vaticanus. But who first came up with this idea that Allah is just the Arabic moon god. It was a name by the, man by the name of Hugo Winkler. I have his picture right here. There's Hugo. He's the first one ever in history who said that Allah is the name for the Habal, Hubal, which was the moon god. There was a moon god in pre-Islamic um, Arabia called Hubal. But he's the first one that came up with the idea. Now, this man was quite famous. He was an archaeologist. He is credited with, and not only credited, he did do the archaeological dig in Turkey where they found the uh, proof that there had been a group of people called the Hittites. So a very famous person. But you know, sometimes a person can be very famous in one area, and then we think that they know everything. How many know that's true? True about some pastors, you know, they can be very good at doing something, but they don't know everything. It's like when the book came out that Jesus is coming back 1988, the big thing was, oh, it's a NASA scientist who wrote it. He said, oh, wow, a NASA scientist says the rapture is going to be 1988. Like, like, is that impressive? I think a NASA scientist should stay with NASA, NASA science. 
But, but that's how people sometimes are easily impressed. So he was a German fellow. When did he come up with this? In 1901. He came up with this idea. And you know, nobody paid attention. In fact, it wasn't very well known. He wrote it in some book that he thought that was something. It didn't become known till the 1990s when a man, a pastor called Robert Morey, wrote a book and he popularized this idea. Later on, picked up by another person who I'm sure had well intention called Jack Chick of Jack Chick, you know, publications and cartoons, who publishes in his cartoons and he popularized it. So, so the, these are the experts. Hugo Winkler, Pastor Robert Morey, who died last year, and Jack Chick. So now you know who the experts are. Are we clear? It's not the guys who translated. It's not the theologians, early Christians, who translated the Bible into Arabic. So to suggest, let me give you more evidence. The Quran, the holy book of Muslims, condemn the worship of the moon, condemns the moon god. In the year 624, how many remember that? There was a great battle called the Battle of Badr. It was between the Muslim forces under Muhammad's leadership and the worshipers of the moon god. These were fighting one another, hardly endorsing one another. In 630, when Muhammad took the city of Mecca, one of the very first things they did was to tear down all statues honoring the moon god Kubal. So I submit to you, I am ashamed of evangelicals lying. It's against the Ten Commandments to lie about other people. And the second commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. I'm ashamed of that. I'm not associated with that group. I have differences with Muslims. My difference with Muslims is, who is Jesus Christ? Muslim friends don't believe that Jesus is God. I believe Jesus is God. Muslim friends don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. They believe either it was Judas or an apparition of Jesus. I have a lot of differences with my Muslim friends, which I never hide from them. And I will stand up for who Jesus is. I will stand up for Jesus Christ and him crucified, glorified, and resurrected. I'm against what Muslim terrorists did on 9-11, but all of that doesn't give me the right to lie about them. And we Christians should know better. When there have been artists, galleries, artistic galleries that have put on display art that depicted Jesus as having homosexual relationship with the disciples, we are offended, aren't we? Are you offended by that? Or that one of the disciples were a pedophile or the likes, are you offended by that? Yes. We, we don't think of people who make those arguments are even reasonable. They think they, we think that such people who make such arguments are merely trying to pick a fight. So why are evangelical preachers, otherwise esteemed by some, though not all, saying unnecessary things that are only, can only inflame and cause hatred when we have such vital matters to talk about as who is Jesus Christ? Who is, why, why do we have to and you know some of these preachers, especially one of them, he sounds so authoritarian. See, you need to sound like that when the stuff you're saying is false. Because that's the only way you can fool people. Put on a costume, on an authoritarian, bombastic voice. It's like whoever raises their voice in an argument is the person who doesn't have a good argument. So I'm ashamed of that. Moving along. 
Let me give you an illustration of this. The nation of Turkey. The nation of Turkey is a Muslim nation. There was an empire called the Ottoman Empire. Its beginning was in 1299 when the city of Ephesus, the church closed its doors in Ephesus. And we're a sad time. The Ottoman Empire continued and really it reached its peak and then it whimpered along and you could say it really ended 1922. The big turning point of the Ottoman Empire was in 1453 when the most prominent Christian city in the world at the time, Constantinople, was conquered by uh, the Muslim uh, forces. So most of that happened in what is today Turkey. Now, because of the Muslim influence in Turkey for centuries, Turkey adapted to many Arabic words, including the word Allah. So when the Bible was first translated in the early 17th century into Turkish, what word do you think the Turkish Bible translators used for God? You're right, they used Allah. Because by that time, they were already four or five hundred years into the Ottoman Empire, that in the vernacular of all the people, when they talked about God in every form, false gods, the true God, it was a form of the word Allah. So that's the only way they could communicate. And uh, then in 1922, Turkey became a modern republic. And you see, there was another word, an original word in the Turkish language for God. It's the word Tanri. God is in Turkish Tanri. And gods, you know, referring to many gods, is Tanrilar. All right, so when Ataturk, the famous founding president of modern Turkey, when he took over, he was going to make Turkey a modern republic, and he ordered people. He ordered the Quran, and he ordered the Bible. He ordered Muslims and Christians, no more Allah. So even in the Quran, they were told, you can't use Allah for God. You got to go, we, we are Turks, and you got to call God Tanri, even in the Quran. <laughs> you know, and in the Bible. And so, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth right now. Turkey today has swung very much back into Islam. Uh, but uh, so then suddenly in today's Turkey, it's a very unique situation. You have two generic words for God. Allah is understood to be God, but also Tanri. So now in more modern Bible translations, not the ones in the early 17th century now, in the Bible today in, in Turkey, they use the word Tanri. It makes perfect sense to me. Because now that is reestablished as a word for God. And so it makes sense. So they don't call God Allah anymore in the Turkish Bible. They call God Tanri. Because it's not about you know, trying to be linguistically pure in some doctrine. It's about communicating to people about who the Almighty is. Some places, you know, for somebody in Indonesia, I spend so much time. This used to never be a problem in the Indonesian Bible. The word for God is Allah. You know, you can just read it. But, you know, they've heard some American preachers. So now, sometimes when I'm preaching in, in Indonesia... When I say God, they say Tuhan. I said, why are you saying Tuhan? Tuhan means Lord. Well, they're scared. So now, I want to play a video that's about one minute long. Notice how I, this is a salvation invitation. Notice how I use the word Allah, and then let me, let me explain why and how. So let's play the video as soon as you have it ready there in the control room. We are ready to go here. You say, I want Jesus Christ. I want to know my sins are forgiven. I want this new life. Come right now. Come right now. Come from the back. Something holy is happening. I'm waiting for thousands more. You say, I want to leave the old life. I want to know my sins are forgiven. Would you pray like this? Say, Lord Jesus Christ. I come to you. You died for my sins. 
raised Jesus from the dead. Tapi Allah membangkitkan Yesus dari kematian. And I confess with my mouth. Aku mengakui dengan mulutku. Jesus is Lord. Yesus adalah Tuhan. Thank you Allah. Terima kasih Allah. That my sins are forgiven. Aku sudah diampuni. My shame is gone. Maluku sudah hilang. New life. Hidup yang baru. Terima kasih. Terima kasih. Isal masih. Terima kasih. Isal masih. Amen. Amen. So now, in that prayer, I used the word Allah twice. I said, Allah raised Jesus from the dead. And I think I said the second time was, thank you, Allah, for forgiving my sins. Now, whenever I show that on television or in any other way, on Facebook, I always receive letters, and it sounds like this. Oh, Pastor Peter, we so much stand with you, but I was so grieved in my spirit when I heard you use the word Allah on that video. Now, I understand where they're coming from, and I know what preachers they've been listening to. So I want to ask you this question. In that city... The people you saw responding were either Christians or Muslims. Let's say they were half and half. Some Christians had wandered away from the Lord and they were responding to that salvation call. Many were Muslims who responded. Now the Christians there, the only name they know for God is Allah. Allah. The Christians, they know God as Allah. The Muslims, they know God as Allah. So what should I do, do you think? Should, should, should I use some other word that they don't know? Should I insert an English word there? Or what, what should I do? A Latin word? What, what, what do you think is reasonable? Since both groups, Christians and Muslims in that city, the Muslims in their book, the Quran, Christians in their book, the Bible, they know God as Allah. So who, how should I call God? So when I say, when people say, I was so grieved in my spirit, I must answer, you were not grieved in your spirit. You have been come to become emotionally attached to a lie that is actually a grave insult. If we want to win people, can we do like Paul? Can we treat them lovingly? Would that be a good idea? So I submit to you, what, what should I do? Then question seven, is worship of the right God the way of salvation? Because so it, it implied in the question, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? That if you just got the right God, then you're saved. That's implied. It's not stated. So I want to quote to you two scripture verses, and now we get to Bible reading. John 4, 22. Jesus says the following to the woman of Samaria. He says, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. He didn't say to her, you worship the wrong God. You worship on Mount Gerizim. You are a Samaritan. He says, you worship what you don't know. Do you notice the nuanced difference there? He's not condemning her for it. He says, you, you don't know. He says, we know. Now, Paul picks up on this in much greater detail described in the Bible in Acts 17. I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship or who you worship in ignorance. So he's acknowledging, Paul, that you're doing worship here. And you're worshiping God, but you're doing that in ignorance. This I proclaim to you, he says, the God who made the world and all things in it. He's talking about the supreme God, which even the religions that have many myriads of gods and deities, they believe in a supreme being that is behind everything, maybe unknown to them. He says, this God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. 
for in him we live and move and exist or have our being. Or as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children, being then the children of God. That's quite a, that's quite a statement. He's speaking to worshipers of Poseidon and Aphrodite and Venus and other gods and goddesses and theos. On Mount Olympus was believed to be the supreme god of the Greek. And Paul is saying here, you who are in all this ignorance, you are still the children of God. Now, he's not speaking of that in the sense that we may speak of the children of God, but he's, because, you know, Jesus said to the Pharisees who were deeply religious, you're of the father of the devil. He's a liar. And so are you. But there is a way here that he is embracing all of this in their ignorance, in their calling on their false god. He is acknowledging the sincerity of their search. He says, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked these times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is Paul's sermon in the city of Athens when they knew nothing about uh, Jesus Christ. He's introducing the message for the first time. And you notice the phrase here says, as some of your own poets, plural, have said. So I just want to make it clear. So Paul here, in his sermon to substantiate, to put meat on his thoughts like all preachers do, finds quotes, Paul found two quotes, he says, your own poets. So I want to share with you what poets was Paul quoting, because these are known poets. The first poet he quoted is Epimenides, who was a poet who worked in the 7th century before Christ, so 2,700 years plus before our time. So this is long before Christ came. And he wrote, here's the verse, that Epimenides wrote. He wrote, you, referring to Zeus, the Greek god, who they believe was supreme. Not Jehovah, not Elohim, not Allah, not Elohim. You are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. So Paul just quotes that. He doesn't go on to this big discussion. Is your name for God right or is our name right? He understands that God has put eternity in every heart. And there is awareness that there's a higher being, a divine being, that is above all. Many of the people, when we were in the, among the Buddhists, now I was investigating, they pray to so many little spirits and deities. And why do they do that? Because they think they need to appease the lesser deities so that those lesser deities will not block them from receiving the blessing from the true and most high God, who they don't know. But they figure if we can just give some food and give some offering to these uh, different lower spirits, maybe they will not let us get to know God. So Paul is quoting that. Isn't that rather uh, free of Paul? You know, if, if I started to quote too many secular poets, some of you would say, I'm leaving this church. I've had it with Peter Younger, and he has fallen by the wayside. I want an old-time religion church. I don't want this kind of newfangled stuff here. Well, I guess you would have said the same thing to the Apostle Paul. You know, said, I've had it with Paul. I don't even believe you've been to the third heaven, standing here quoting Epimenides, that ungodly poet from 700 years ago. What's this world coming to? Then the second poet that he quotes is Aratus. Aratus was working in the fourth century before Christ. And he wrote, and I quote from Aratus, every street... Every marketplace is full of zoos. Even the sea and the harbor are full of this deity. Everywhere, everyone is indebted to Zeus, for we are indeed his offspring. So, he says, your own poets had a sense of this. They knew that all people were made by God. So what I'm bringing you about Jesus Christ is not so strange because you already live and move and have your being in him. 
And those so that you redeem in your those so that you esteem in your own history, they had this foreboding. Nothing about you have the wrong God, and your God's so stupid and get 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 get. None of that. But a humble recognition that God created all people, that all people are loved by God, but some are in ignorance. That our job is not to go around demolish other so-called deities, because frankly. This idea, you know, is there a Christian God, a Hindu God, a Muslim God? How many gods do you think there are? Myself, I only think there's one God. How many gods do you think there are in the universe? You think there's one for every religion? So even the question is, do they have one God and we have a different God? It becomes rather foolish. There's only one God. And the gospel is not to demean other people, lie about them and insult them. The gospel is about enlightening them as to who this true nature of this God is. That this God who they thought was a bloodthirsty, demanding sacrifice, this God is not like that. This God is full of love. And if you haven't seen it already by the Psalms and all the different things, then he sent in the fullness of time his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to show us who God really is. Then I come to the last question. And that is, how do we share the gospel, Christ, among Muslims? So, you know, I've written a whole book on that. And much of the material I shared here, because this book I wrote 10 years ago. So hopefully I got a few more things to substantiate what I wrote in this book. And so I may need to rewrite it and make it twice as big. You know, that probably was going to happen. I don't even have a picture of Codex Arabicus Vaticanus because when I wrote this 10 years ago, I didn't even know that. But I keep studying. I keep learning. And the more I learn, the more I realize how little I knew. But I'm glad I knew something. And so I was just, I want to give you the little message. I was invited for coffee and cookies to an Islamic university earlier this year. And the board of directors wanted to meet with me because they thought it was just a social meeting. I had invited them for dinner. They were reciprocating. I'd already preached to them at the dinner, but I thought I'm going to surprise them. So when we have our coffee and our little cookies, it wasn't like American style cookies. It was some other kind of thing like that. Sweet. I said, I prepared a message for you. May I share it with you now? Board of directors members. So I did. So this is just a little bit. But get the book. The book is full of this. This book has a lot of valuable information. So I shared with them 14 statements from the Quran. They didn't expect that. They thought I might preach the Bible to them. But I, I did like Paul. I shared from the Quran. And I said, now... I want to remind you scholars, and some of you, I had even the head of their theological department was right there sitting in front of me, so I knew, you know, so I was kind of acting willy-nilly and not know what I'm talking about, so I said to him, you know, Christ is mentioned 97 times in Quran, much more than the prophet Muhammad has ever mentioned. It's true. And you know that your holy book says, Quran says that Jesus was born of a virgin, and specifically the Virgin Mary, who the Quran says is the most blessed of women. And it is very clear that Jesus is the only one, though you call him a prophet, he is the only one who didn't have an earthly father. And I said, I remind you, and you know this, of course, that the prophet Muhammad, he had a father, his name was Abdul. And they know that. I was just letting them know that I knew. <laughs> I wasn't trying to teach his brother they didn't know. And I said, now you know that Jesus Christ in the Quran is called the word of God. Not just a word or that he should. He's called the word of God. That's a rather high exalted title that no one else has given. He's also called the Messiah. No one else is called that in the Quran. The Quran also says that God commissioned Jesus to preach the gospel that Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus performed miracles and healed the sick. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight facts so far. It also says, number nine, Jesus raised the dead back to life. 
the Quran in, I think it's Surah 43. Surah is the chapter, Arabic word for chapter, which means actually like a gate or a step. It, it, it says that Jesus said, follow me. I said, isn't that wonderful? That in your book, the Quran, you're told to follow Jesus. And it says, the Quran says he will come back on the day of judgment. And it says he is to be held in honor now and in the world hereafter. And then I say this one, because this is the biggest one of all. I said, do you know it says in the Quran, and I know you know, that Jesus was without sin. You know, of course, they believe Jesus was a prophet. That's a big difference. But of all the prophets, mentioned or not mentioned in the Quran, because they have a number of not mentioned one prophets, the only one without sin is Jesus. In fact, you can read the Quran as any uh, Muslim scholar will tell you, and Muhammad, the prophet, that they believe is the greatest prophet. Time and again, he cried out to God for forgiveness from sin. Allah be merciful to me because I've sinned. So it's in their own book that Muhammad sinned. Not just once, but a number of occasions. But it says right there in the Quran that Allah, God, protected Jesus. Jesus never sinned. To me, that's a very interesting observation. Because we, and I told them this, we believe that Jesus took the sins of the world. And wouldn't it, it doesn't make sense that a sinful person who is already contaminated with sin would also be able to take the sins of everybody else. It makes sense that someone without sin would be able to take the world's sins. And I just keep talking about that. And they look at them and smile, and they're thinking like, oh boy, he's read too much in our Quran. <laughs> then I say to them, you know, lest you think that I am deceived to think that we believe everything the same. No, remember I said, I'm not Chris Long. I said, we have two huge differences. I said, the first one is, who is the Son of God? Is Jesus the Son of God? That's the, that, that's the one difference. Big, that's big. He said, how do you answer that? Get my book, my Muslim friends. I have several, uh, go on and on, chapter, page after page explaining that. And I gave that to them, but I only have so much time, and I want to put some hook in you to get my book. You see what I'm saying? I, I was born at night, but not last night. I want you to get the book as well, because you get a lot more that way. And, and I talked to them about that. I said, the other one is, you don't think that Jesus died on the cross. You think it was either Judas who took on a likeness to Jesus, or that there was an apparition of Jesus. You know, they have different beliefs. And I talk about how I answer that. It is in this book as well. And they just smile at me. I said, now, I cannot change you, but I can preach the gospel. And Jesus, who is alive, confirms when I preach the gospel with signs, wonders, and miracles. And I'm not here to force you to believe. I'm here to give you an opportunity. And then a little bit with a, a tongue-in-cheek, but a very loving tongue in my loving cheek, must I must add. I like to quote, I really like this verse so much because it's a problematic verse for my Muslim friends. They have right in their Holy Quran a very problematic verse. And that is Surah 1933. Can you imagine I'm quoting from the Quran? Don't get mad. Say, Paul quoted those poets. Our pastor is just like the Apostle Paul. Go home and say that. Don't go home and say he preached from the Quran. I didn't. I'm preaching the Bible. But I'm just applying what Paul did. Here's from the Quran. This is Jesus saying this. This is attributed a statement by Jesus in Surah 19, verse 33. Peace is on me the day I was born, the day that I die, and that day I shall be raised up to life again. Or the day I, shall, I rise again. The kind of added to depend a little bit what translation of the Quran you use. Well, you say, why is that problematic to them? Because Muslims believe that Jesus was born and then he was raised up to heaven and then he's coming back to die. So the order is born, raised to heaven, back to die. But this verse doesn't say that. It says he was born and he died and he was raised up. So I don't make too much of it. I just say, this is my favorite verse. You know, a great statement by Jesus. Surah 1933. I love you so much. Think about this. Read it when you go home. I might say like that.
but I don't insult people. I don't like to lie about people. We have our differences. We have our differences. We have plenty of differences, as I do with Buddhists and Hindus. But Jesus never said, go into all the world and tell everybody what's wrong with them. No. We respect people. We don't hide our differences. But we are not picking unnecessary fights to play to our own base. You know, there's some, you know that man I mentioned before, Robert Morey? Robert Morey, the one who took Hugo Winkler's research and actually made it known and then passed it on to the other preachers whose names I shall mention again. You know that Robert Morey, you can check this out. He's one of these militaristic fanatics. And he bragged about how he said, I wrote a letter to the Pentagon after 9-11, and he said, I just told them they should bomb Mecca and Medina to the ground. That'll put an end to terrorism. But there are too much wussies in the Pentagon. They wouldn't do it. I appreciate the Pentagon had more sense than that. And how Christians can stand up and clap for preachers doing that. And think it's so, yeah, tell him. He's telling it like it is. No, he's not telling it like it is. Those preachers who lie about Muslims, they do a great disservice to the gospel. Because Muslims quote them and say, look how they hate us. But some of them are saying about Peter Youngren. You can hear it in some of the testimonies that we air sometimes. They say, you know, I felt he loved us so much. And I don't think I'm such a loving person except for the love of God. But I'm thinking now of one Muslim woman who was lame and her husband carried her. Six years, couldn't walk. And she said, I came because I felt that man loved us. And I called on Jesus, and he came right away. And she gave total glory to Jesus and received him. So I have dedicated most of my life, and I plan to dedicate the rest of my life to see as many as possible of the earth's 8 billion people receive the gospel. And these lies that are just lies, unnecessary hostility. It's not representing Jesus Christ. And so I wanted to speak this, make it publicly available, to kick that idea in the shins with a smile. But I got one question here. Most Muslims says God is not a man, that he should have a son, that is like degrading God and bringing God to a human level that is created by the Creator. How do you counter that? Well, thank you for asking that question because in fact I could have done a better job with that when I, I addressed it a little bit. So here's what I do. And I did that in that meeting, you know, with those uh, Muslim uh, university uh, officials. I addressed this very question. So thank you for bringing it to my memory. I said like this, now when this come to this issue that we are divided about God's Son, I said, I know that you think that we think something we don't think. You think that we think that God came and had sexual relationship with a woman. And I said, you Muslim, I know you find that blasphemous. I said, we do too. We don't think of God having sexual relationship with Mary as a man would have sexual relationship with a woman to procreate. And I said, you think that's what we think, but we find that equally disturbing like you do. So see right there, I have kind of, uh, shall we say, I've, I've brought us more close. And then, so I said, look at it this way. In the Arabic language, and I explain this all in my book, it's in this book, there are two words for son. There is Ibn and Walad. Don't worry about that. It's in the book here. I said one is a more metaphorical word, 
One is literally the son, as if the offspring from a sexual union. So for example, I say, we may say to someone in Canada who was born here, we may say, or, or Pastor Nathan, I'll use him as an example, he was born in Nova Scotia. So we could say, Pastor Nathan is a son of Nova Scotia. It doesn't mean that we think that the province of Nova Scotia had a sexual relationship with anybody. But we are saying he is begotten. He came from there. And in the, in the Arabic language, they actually have two distinctive words. They could mean literal son, both of them, but one of them also means metaphorically. So I go in to describe it. It doesn't mean you're going to answer every question. They're going to agree with you and be overwhelmed. What's going to answer it for people is when they see Jesus Christ and his message confirmed with signs, wonders, and miracles. That's going to answer it. But at least you can get the foot in the door and let them know you've thought about it. So that's how I address that. So thank you for asking that. The reason is this idea that denigrates and mocks people and lies about them is a great hindrance to the gospel. There are 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. And knowing that there are millions of Christians who speak lies of them is a hindrance to the spreading of the gospel. And I want to remove it. I want to get Christians to stop talking stupid. So that I can get one hindrance out of the way. So we can win millions more for Jesus Christ. That is why I'm preaching this. That's the reason. So make no mistake about that. I don't, it's not, if it was just a trivial subject, hey, let's discuss something that's a little controversial. I don't want that because some of you might get mad at me. I don't want you to get mad at me. I want you to love me. I suppose you feel the same way. You want people to love you. It's only because I believe it's important. This is a hindrance. And I want to remove the hindrance.